and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm Holly Rubenstein. I'm a travel journalist and editor. And here each week, I'll be speaking to a very special guest about their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. This week, I'm joined by the food writer and TV presenter Giles Corrin. Giles has been a restaurant critic and columnist for The Times newspaper for 17 years. And alongside Chef Monica Galletti, he is a presenter of Amazing Hotel's Life Beyond the Lobby, a BBC series that sees him travel the globe, visiting some of the world's most incredible hotels, rolling up his sleeves to work alongside their staff. I spoke to Giles remotely. He was in his London home, so apologies for any sound glitches. We spoke a couple of weeks ago just as lockdown was beginning to ease and restaurants were beginning to open up. And as well as, of course, covering some wonderful hotels, stay tuned for some great foodie recommendations too. I really enjoyed this chat. Giles doesn't take himself or travelling too seriously, and I'm sure he'll make you chuckle. So, Let's get started from Andalusia to Kenya and French Polynesia to Kerala. Here are the travel diaries of Giles Corrin. Giles Corrin, welcome to the Travel Diaries. It's a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So we are talking as the new series of Amazing Hotels Life Beyond the Lobby is out on the TV. Absolutely loving the new series. I've watched all three seasons avidly, as I'm sure many of our listeners have. I mean, this is a this is a, 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 not tragically, but sadly, slightly shorter season. It's not as long as it would have been if it hadn't been for the virus. Um, we've only we've only we've only got three in this one, and then we'll have three later. So, are you going to go back and record the second half of the season when it's okay to travel again? Yes, or possibly they'll let us do even more. I mean, we normally do six. We had done four. Well, we we were we were recording in China when when the virus struck. I was, I was we were literally in Macau, Monica and I, in a hotel, and oh. noticed locals. And it was just before Chinese New Year, and we started. There's always some people, and when you're in Macau or Hong Kong or mainland China, there's always some people wearing masks, and you think, oh, they're a bit neurotic about I don't know what pollution, and and then. Then we started to notice a lot of people were in masks in Macau, and it was just ahead of the Chinese New Year when people travel in from all over China to, to go gambling, basically, in Macau. And we were asking people, what are those masks for? And they're going, oh, nothing much, bit of flu up in Wuhan. And I, and I looked up on the, on the news, and it was just starting to appear as a BBC news story, quite low on the list of priorities. And it basically took off while we were there. Um, it was all meant to build up towards the Chinese New, New Year festivities. I was, we were staying in this wonderful MGM, you know, Kotai, and uh, we were doing things like learning to do dragon dances and lion dances with kids. And I was doing fire displays and fireworks for the New Year. It was all going to build to a New Year's Eve party, uh, a Chinese New Year party. And of course, they cancelled the Chinese New Year. Oh, my gosh. So was it was it scary thinking about how you're going to get back home to the UK safely? I mean, you're lucky that did you have to quarantine when you got back? Oh, no, gosh, no. I just came in and coughed over everybody. I might have been <laughs> patient one. Uh, they, no, they didn't. They didn't know about quarantine. They, it hadn't. There was no question of it coming here yet. That whole it hadn't got to Italy yet. So that whole thing where it, we uh, all know yeah. it really came from Italy, didn't it? Uh, well, mm. that's how it was. That was the super spreaders came from. I, I just had faint nightmares. They started to lock down Wuhan, and there was talk about locking down China. And what's the status of Macau? I mean, Hong Kong, they were rioting, obviously. I had to go from Macau. It was the first wave of the Hong Kong riots before the clampdown. But we had to, from, from Macau, you have to you take the bridge to Hong Kong, the longest road bridge in the world, 
to Hong Kong and then you fly out of there. So it's can we get into Hong Kong? Can we get out of Hong Kong? Will there be riots in Hong Kong? Will they close down the whole thing? And then will this virus kill everybody? Because at that stage, it could have been, we didn't know it wasn't especially lethal. I mean, it's bad, but it generally doesn't kill everybody. And I just thought, am I going to get locked down in this hotel? Macau's not a, it's an exciting place to go gambling. They've got great restaurants. It's not a very cozy place for a you know, unless you're a low, it's not a for for a European abroad. It's it's pretty futuristic. And I thought, am I going to be locked down here? I can't get back to my wife and children, and and millions of people are going to die. Having a fairly apocalyptic view um, of things, and I'm not the most adventurous traveller at the best of times. So to find myself literally halfway around the world as Armageddon appears to be coming, thinking if I were in Italy, I could sort of walk home, couldn't I? I and mean, the Alps would be in the way, but you could find your way. You could hitch a lift from China. Not so much. And I ended up, I was looking at maps on my phone going, well, I'd walk up through China, walk across, walk across the Stans, uh, gradually sort of cross Kazakhstan, as so I probably into Turkey. I could walk that thinking that I could get, if, if it's really bad, is it going to take me three years to walk home? I'll need a change of shoes. Will there be shoes? Uh, and then I, I literally saw myself, I was having visions like okay, Turkey, cross the bridge, I got into mainland Europe. And then, and then thinking to myself, so I don't, will I go to Hungary or, and, and then Germany? Um, and, and, and will I, will I, or will I, would it be nicer if I try and stay south and walk across sort of Italy, France and up that way? Um, but in the end, I just got a cab to, HK and, and flew out and was home in no time. So we, yes, we'll record some more when we can, but it's up in the air. Who knows where? I don't think we'll go very far away. We were supposed to be going to India, mm. um, and that's a bit far at the current time. So I think you might, we might do some English hotels. Right. Okay. Let's kick off with your mm. travel diaries, Charles. Uh, starting at the very beginning of life, uh, chapter one is your earliest childhood travel memory. What would that be? Um, well, my parents were not sort of not big travellers in the conventional sense of the word, and so we weren't as a family particularly. But it was it was the they were very into the it was the early seventies, the, the the package holiday boom. So we went away for two weeks every summer, and they sort of blend into one. We I know that we went to we used to go to Ibiza, uh, we used to go to the Algarve. We used to go to the south of France, just two weeks flat, lying by the beach, pina coladas, smoking silk cut, the parents, not the, not the kids, mm-hmm. uh, reading sort of Freddie Forsyth novels. That's what they did. And that's my, my, my memory of that is just a sun of no sunscreen. So being always very burnt, uh, jumping in swimming pools and um, not, you know, being slightly wary of the food, because the, which is that, but as a child from the 70s, I just wanted to eat. Finnish crispy pancakes and uh, an angel delight, butterscotch angel delight, and mm-hmm. sort of monster munch. And thinking, why haven't they got this? Why do they have these strange things? I was the, the things I were afraid of were only steak and chips. Um, but it was, uh, but that yeah, it, it was that, and it was my my my, my dad and his speedos, and you know, flying into airports, hire car, um, and then going to classic sort of English Brit abroad, not that bothered by the culture or the language or the place that you were just really traveling somewhere hot to drink sangria and always coming back with a whatever country we were in we came back with um those portuguese cockerels those sort of love cockerels love birds mm-hmm, portuguese mm-hmm. love birds it seemed to be wherever we went we came back with one of those it may be that we only went to portugal or it may be that that's <laughs> just what they sold it in all the airports either that or a sombrero and you've written about how we inherit from our parents a preference for the same certain mm. sort of holiday, which I thought was such a true observation. So if they ski, you do the same thing. Mm. If they sail, you sail. So are you a package holiday taker with your own family, young family now? Yeah, I mean, the package holiday is less of a thing now. I mean, you know, with the, 
those were literal travel agents. I mean, my dad would just go into the travel agent office and say, right, on a two week holiday, I'll pay, uh, you know, 300 quid a person. We want this, this, somewhere and this. hot. Yeah, somewhere hot, done. And I used to, and I grew up doing that, no question. So when I was a sort of student uh, and, and a sort of gap year type person, everyone else was, whatever they were doing, trekking in Nepal or heading off to Thailand to smoke weed and go to temples and things. I went with my girlfriend to a uh, uh, travel agent on, on the high street in Hampstead and I think I, we went to Kos uh, and I was like all in one package, 114 quid for two weeks, including food and booze. Those were the days. Bargain. 1988 or something like that. And then subsequently, yes, that, that was basically what I did. And now I don't do that. Now I'm a bit... You know, I'm a bit more posh, a bit more upper middle, uh, and uh, and a bit more, well, I'm frankly, well travelled and sort of discerning. And so, if they're not package holidays, but it's the same principle. We don't do things on holiday. Um, a holiday for my family is we go to interesting places, but but it's but broadly there's got to be a pool and there's got to be room service and there's got to be you know comfy things like that. Yeah. The, the the one exception is we my parents really didn't do anything. Uh, they just it was just to to sort of uh, relax in, in the middle of the working year so so but but we we took the children to Africa we took them to Kenya um, for two weeks and we uh, traveled around and flew on little planes and went up into Samburu and uh, went on safaris when they were a few years ago they were they were five and three and we kept thinking we would love to take the kids but they're a bit young for safari and they were when are they actually going to be old you know for getting up early in the morning and driving out and camping and all that mm-hmm. when are they going to be old enough well they're not going to be old enough to appreciate it for ages so let's just go because we want to go Mm-hmm. Uh, and they can come along. And I have fantastic sort of film footage on my phone in in Samburu of being in a being in a truck, and there's a huge bull elephant giving off an amazing sort of dawn trumpet call, and it's twenty yards away. And between me and the elephant is my daughter wrapped up in a blanket at the age of five, reading Diary of a Wimpy Kid, not even turning around to look <laughs> at the elephant because she couldn't have cared less. But that, so that was us trying to drag our kids to do something. But but by and large. You know, we just we 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 go somewhere. We we lie on a beach at a push. We get a you know we hire a rib somewhere like Greece and just go from island to island eating calamari and drinking retzina. But it's always broadly a Mediterranean sun holiday. I mean that it, people divide into two camps or, or multiple camps, as you say. But the notion of it not being okay to relax on a holiday really kind of irks me. Yes, but it's it's baffling. I, I always had that. I've always you know we often go away with other families and the. The parents will be up in the morning to go for a run. For a run, is there a gym? They are. Is there a gym? I can do these things. I can ski. I can water ski. But if I'm on holiday for a week uh, and long lunch, drinking rosé and and uh, eating stuffed courgette flowers or something like that, and having, and we're right, we're going to go water skiing. Well, I'll see you later. Right? No interest in being pulled along behind a boat uh, and then having stiff arms for the rest of the holiday. And, and uh, the, the, the one thing I suppose if you do, I mean, or, or, or mountain biking, there's another one friends of mine do. But the, the one thing is, is that if you do stuff on holiday, then it feels longer. If you, if you do literally nothing, then suddenly the holiday's over. Whereas if you do different things, you end up with an, a sort of collection of memories and the time feels like it's stretched out a bit. Well, Chapter two is the first place that you fell in love with. If did it involve any exertion? Um, well, it's in, interesting. Uh, in terms of, I was thinking about this. What was the first place I fell in love with? The first place that I fell in love with, having spoken about books, was Spain, but through books, not through going there. Oh. So when I was young, I was I was a big fan of Laurie Lee, and I sided with Rosie, who'd been forced on us at school. Mm-hmm. And then his second book, 
Um, and for anyone who don't know him, this is an English author of the, of the 20th century, born about 1912, 1914. I think his first book was about growing up in the Cotswolds before, before the, just after the First World War. And then as I walked out one midsummer morning, 1934 or five, I think it was when he set off, set off on foot from his, the garden gate of his, of his place in the Cotswolds, very in, very in the Slad Valley, very near where I now have a house. And he walked to London, paying his way, playing the violin, uh, got to Dover took a boat across to France, then walked down through Spain and walked into Spain as the Civil War broke out. And this is amazing, amazing travel book, which I read over and over and over again, where he travels, he, he walks across Spain through the, the Civil War, a, a still basically medieval place Spain was at that stage. Uh, and it just the adventures he has there. And I was reading that and I was also reading lots of Hemingway about bullfighting, death in the afternoon and the sun also rises, all this. And I just thought of Spain and Laurie Lee talks about walking the, the dusty byways brown as an apostle. And I just thought, yeah, because getting a suntan is really key for me. Uh, and I just thought of Spain and the heat and the white. And, and I just, always, and that wasn't, you know, my, my, my holidays weren't like that. And my experience of travel wasn't like that. But that was the place that I fell in love with. And later I did get to do that with, with friends, with a friend of mine who was a big Hispanophile and to walk a lot in Spain and got very into bullfighting, which I think I, think I no longer approve of. But in my, in my 20s, I thought was the most exciting thing in the world. Mm. Uh, and I managed to sort of, for a while, live up to this sort of dream of a, of a young, free, single, independent Englishman, uh, because it's a very Anglo vision of, of Spain, because obviously Spain is a vast and complex place, but to American and English tourists, it's basically bullfighting sherry and girls dancing flamenco. Uh, and, 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 I, and I, you know, I just touched on a bit of it. I had sort of one or two romantic intrigues, watched a lot of bullfights, drank a lot of sherry, smoked a lot of Ducados. And I, I think, so I think that would be, it almost measured up as places so often don't to travel writing. It almost measured mm-hmm. up. And I, so I sort of feel like I spent my youth in Andalusia. <laughs> but mm-hmm. it was probably altogether about six weeks spread across four years. And most of it I've stolen from Laurie Lee and, and, and Hemingway. Mm. And a lot of people know you best as the restaurant critic for The Times. It's one of those mm-hmm. kind of dream jobs, I'd say. And there are a few questions I've always wanted to know. Firstly, do you book using your own name? No. Um, unless, I mean, if I'm for work, no, for, for any, for other things, probably yes, because obviously we're in a diff- different time now, assuming the world is all back to normal as it may one day be. Uh, I, a lot of restaurants, anywhere that I go back to, anywhere I go for pleasure will be somewhere I've been before. So I want them to know who I have. So that they <laughs> yeah. the table. Uh, fortunately, when I phone them on my phone, they go, hello, Giles, because everywhere has records of your phone numbers now. So if I'm if I'm going out for a nice time, I want them to know who I am. And you know, I've been I'm at Marina a lot on the Sunday Times. Part of her mode d'emploi is that she is invisible. She is uh, she is anonymous. A lot of the others, Jay Rayner, you know, hugely pompous about uh, you know about about uh, trying to be fair handed and not get special preferential treatment. Although you know the reason that they do TV and all that is to be visible and to be treated differently um but i I don't i don't have that sort of that sort of pomposity particularly i'm i'm really pleased to be well known in in that field because it means that when i go to restaurants i can get treated better so i tell them yep it's me i'm coming and i want a nice table i don't want anything free and i never take anything free and i wouldn't expect but yes why not why not We, we you know in the same way that we all get treated i hope better in our local pub or our local um, mm-hmm. high street Italian. You, you go you go once a month, they get to know you, they tell you what's good today, they sometimes give you a bottle of wine, they're nice to you, they give you a good table. But, but for work, absolutely not. Um, partly as a favour to them, because if they know I'm coming, they'll be impossibly stressed. You know, everyone knows that you have a 
pre-service sort of chat and the manager will go, right, we've got so-and-so in today, we're going to be doing this, this is the yeah. specials, this is the blah, blah, blah. We've seen all that on the sort of TV food reality shows. And then they'll go, oh, and if they knew me, oh, Giles Corrin's coming in, he's a famous, he's a terrible bastard, and he'll probably, you know, we've got to be nice to him because he's very fussy and I want to make sure we've got to have this on the menu because he likes that. And, you know, everybody be careful, and, you know, don't, don't talk to him too much, leave him alone, but at the same time you must ask him. You know, I think, gosh, they're all just trembling by the time I get in. Uh, and they'll have a terrible time and I'll have a terrible time. Um, and it's it's much better to just book under a fake name. I arrived, you know, I'm humbly, I don't want to say, I don't know if there aren't trumpets in a red carpet. My <laughs> wife usually say, hi, we're here, the Smiths. And they, people don't necessarily recognize me. I was going to um, say, when have you noticed staff clocking you and suddenly kind of turning pale? Yeah, sometimes they literally, I've seen, I, I walked into... Pompette in Oxford about a year ago, and and the waitress stopped to look at me, and then dropped a jug on the floor and was smashed on the. You know, they they sometimes they, they yeah they. What happens is quite. I never know if they've clocked me. I can sit in the corner facing the wall, and then what happens is gradually the chefs start to come out, and they come out. You know when you you think you see somebody famous. I'm not going to call myself famous in a restaurant concept context to another chef. They would know who I was, but if you're if you go somewhere and you think that you've seen Richard Maidley, I don't know, or, or, or Rufus Wainwright or, or Paloma Faith or whatever. Great examples of famous people. I don't know why I've chosen three incredibly middle-class people because I, there's no point in saying Madonna because she's never anywhere that I go. Um, uh, but you, you, you think you've seen Maidley you know, and you take another circuit of the room to go walk past again to see if it was him. Or you know how you try and look, you turn around to try and look. I remember seeing Jack Nicholson in the Ivy and you sort of turn around. To, and look, and then he catches your eyes. So you look up at the ceiling as if you were actually just checking the architraves, you know, as if you're really interested in architecture or, yeah. or you put your hand up, but you try. I, so I noticed, I've noticed that I noticed the chef suddenly surfaces and so does the sous chef. They, they quite often, they tremble when they're pouring the wine. So it goes clink and they, they, they're just shaking so much. And I think, why? I'm just a restaurant critic. I write for the Times. It's behind a paywall and nobody sees it. Why do you care? Uh, and, 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 uh, but the, the bottle's going clank, 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 clank on the glass. Um, and, I, I feel sorry for them, and I, you know, I, you know, I de- desperately want to put them at their ease. It also it depends a little bit whether I'm on the telly at the moment. I've got a TV show out, so people do recognise me, but I'm not, I'm not a permanent fixture on the TV. So mm-hmm. I'm not when I when I haven't got a show on, nobody really notices who I am, um, and, and it's much nicer that way. Have you seen the photos of the restaurants in the new normal where like sommeliers are wearing giant visors and so I've been on. to them. I've been to them. Oh, you have. And so how are you feeling about it? What's your, what's your feeling? You, oh, I think it, I, I think it's slightly nonsensical. I think they, they're, I've been to a few. I went to La Petite Maison in Mayfair yesterday for lunch. I went to Chewton Glen's for the weekend and, and ate in a couple of their restaurants there. Oh, lovely. They're doing, they're, they're doing what they, they can with um, the, slightly messy guidelines the government have, have given them i'm not one to bash the government particularly i mean I, it's had more death than anybody but maybe it's just bad luck but um the, the the messages haven't been madly clear i don't know i'm not saying i'd have done a better job but the messages going out to the industry i've not been clear mm. so they don't really know what they have to do and what they don't have to do at Chewton glen they were wearing full face masks like hannibal lecter right up to the eyeballs and down under the chin and then you, you say um what are the specials and they'd go and I'd say what <laughs> and it's a bloke with a French accent talking through three inches of cloth and it's impossible to understand what he's saying um, and then he takes the mask off and tells you and you can see the spit in the air and you think well, put it back on um, and then my, whereas at Chewton, uh, sorry whereas at La Petite Maison they were just wearing standard issue NHS spit catchers you know sort of pale blue strap except the sommelier who was wearing the full visor 
the full perspex thing, which made which, which my first thought. Some of my, I don't know how old you are, but some of my generation, you think uh, welder by day, dancer by night. Um, <laughs> flash dance being the, the, the reference there. They just look like welders with these huge things. I don't know what this is. They look ridiculous. And then they've got some of them have this much space between tables, and some of them don't. Uh, they, I've experienced they don't have menus. You have to put your phone to a, you know, you scan a code on the table, and it tells you uh, what the menu is, so you don't have to touch anything. Uh, but then they bring you a wine list, uh, and you touch, and it's a big leather wine list, and you touch that. I, I've only so far I've been eating usually with my kids there, and I give them a big lecture about when we go to a posh restaurant, so no screens at the tables. And then when we get there, they say, "Take out your phones." Um, God, it's so hard and, to navigate. Yeah, so so I, they've got to try and open. And a lot of people annoy that they're opening. A lot of people on the left, the food left, which is a sort of there is a left-wing food media that exists. It's not very influential, but they're very angry with, with the restaurants for opening at all. They think it's exploitative of the workers, which may be true, but right. but um, I don't know. We, we've got to try and get, get back to it, I guess. COVID aside, though, um, I'm sure you're asked this all the time, but what is your recommendation for the best place in London for a slap-up meal? I'm always curious to ask people in the know about this. It's been so long, like so long ago, honestly, it's Places which are really, really sort of posh and fancy and OTT and expensive, I wasn't that interested in. Now I find that's what I miss. So I quite miss Le Gavroche. I quite miss the River River Cafe. I wouldn't normally go there because they're very expensive and a bit overbearing. But now that I can't go, I've had a lot of five guys deliveries. (laughs) So I don't really, I'm I'm good for burgers, you know. I miss miss Chinese horribly. You know, I, I really like good Chinese food. Mm. Um, I miss Min Chang on the in Kensington, oh, by Kensington Palace up on the roof. You have amazing, amazing Peking duck looking out at the park. That sort of thing I miss. Oh, yeah. um, uh, I miss Jim Carner, the posh Indian best in, in, in Piccadilly and Dover Street. I don't really bother to cook fish because it's sort of smelly and difficult to keep and quite hard to do well. So uh, I, I miss fish restaurants. I miss Palmer's in Covent Garden, Scotts in Mayfair, that sort of thing. Jay Shiki, those ones. You know, just just you know. normally I'm very fussy but now gosh anywhere that's got a table anywhere that you can walk in and a bloke will come over and bring you an ice cold glass of wine and a list of delicious things which someone will cook for you and then bring with a bottle of red and then they'll take it away and wash it up and all you have to do is give them money never before has it seemed like such a good deal yeah we have a newfound appreciation that's for sure Mm. So if you're tuning in today, there's a good chance you enjoy listening to podcasts and I have one to recommend to you. It's called Forever Young and it's brought to you by Lancerhoff, the world's leading health resort. The podcast is hosted by Lancerhoff's Chief Marketing Officer, Niels Behrens, and its motive is to help people achieve a better and healthier lifestyle. Lancerhoff has been setting standards in modern medicine for more than 30 years, and on the podcast, health experts including nutritionists, dermatologists, and professional sports people are interviewed on issues related to health, wellness, physical fitness, and everyday ailments. Forever Young enables us to understand the importance of a healthy lifestyle and the impact of everyday habits. One of the most recent episodes, which I found fascinating, is about resilience. Featuring Dr. Ursula Levine, a general practitioner at Lanzerhof at the Arts Club, who has 30 years of clinical experience combining Western and traditional Chinese medicine with trauma therapy. She talks about the significance of health and how it influences our entire life and well-being and how both genetics and the family environment are crucial having an influence on our well-being and age. Search for Forever Young on your preferred podcast platform and listen today. I hope you enjoy it. Now let's get back to Giles. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK. And in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travelers just like I do? Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. So let's move on to chapter three of your Travel Diaries. And that is the place where you learned the most about yourself. Um, well, I, I, don't, I don't think I know myself very well at all. I don't have a kind of, yeah, I went to this ashram and discovered my eighth chakra or whatever kind of a story. But um, That's quite a popular answer, actually. Is that the thing? Is, I'm sure, is it really? Yes. People honestly really say that. India is quite a popular place for, for finding out about yourself. Oh, I've never found anything in India myself, quite apart from it. But that's not fair to say. No, I've had okay times in India, but I, I don't, yeah, I mean, they, they, this, this, what's called white man, white explorer complex. Mm-hmm. I mean, they went to India, they climbed up some mountain, they got some altitude sickness, they smoked a doobie, and then suddenly they realised all their life had been, I mean, I, I'm quite sceptical of that. It's not the 70s anymore. We're not George Harrison uh, and, and, and John Lennon out there with Ravi Shankar listening to the sitar and, and doing LSD. It's, it's, I, I learned most about myself probably the, the weeks, a couple of weeks after I left school, I went interrailing with my friend Alex Goulden. Uh, and I'd never travelled at all. I'd just been on these family holidays, never been away from home. And I got the number 13 bus 
from Platts Lane on Finchley Road down to Finchley Road Tube Station, down to uh, whatever state, Charing Cross, was it? You used to get the train to Dover, I think. We're, we're going into railing. I've got this thing, it's 140 pounds, travel for a whole month, amazing. That Hem- I had my Hemingway with me and my Laurie Leo. We're going to meet girls, we're going to go to parties. And on, on the train down, I remember someone had left a bottle of vodka and 200 Winston, which was a kind of cigarette that used to exist. And I was then 18, oh, smoke. We're going to smoke, we're going to drink. My friend Alex Goulden said, no, I've, I've given up booze and... Uh, but what the two of us i thought we were, i thought we were mostly going Design. to be allowed to smoke and we were like the two brothers in friday night dinner really there's these two gormless jewish boys from north london and we thought, i thought what we're going to finally do is like smoke and drink without our parents being there to tell us we can't uh but he wouldn't do that and then and then everywhere we went we'd get out of the station it didn't look very nice i didn't realize then that the bit around the station isn't very nice so we went down to east and got back on the show went to Pamplona because I'd heard about it from the Bulls didn't like the bit around that we never ended up leaving the train really we, we, all the restaurants Alex Goulden my, my, I haven't seen him since didn't like this he were all food you might get food poisoning he didn't like the look of any of it so we ended up eating McDonald's I remember going to Nice and, and coming out of the station and going, there's the McDonald's and eating a Le, my, my Le, Le Big Mac um, and then whenever we, we tried to find somewhere to sleep and whenever we went to a hotel Alex had this uh test for but he had a torch with him his mother had told him that if you go into a cheap hotel you shine the torch on the bed and then you rip off the counterpane or the duvet and you, if you see bed bugs you don't stay there and the torch will illuminate the bed bugs and the bed bugs were everywhere uh, so we couldn't stay in any we couldn't stay in any hotel so we could only sleep on the trains but it's a it so we would sleep on the trains um and they they, they were plastic bunks quite narrow unisex uh Plastic, and you were just with eight in a room, and they were all seemed to be full of Ukrainian soldiers. Uh, and we would just get in there, keep our clothes on, and just, you can't really sleep. There's nowhere to wash, and we'd arrive from some new. Day. We went to Amsterdam to, and, and were too afraid to buy ash, which was the only reason really for going to Amsterdam. Uh, and we came back after eleven days, having had a properly awful time. Didn't meet or talk to anyone. Uh, <laughs> and I came back and rang the doorbell, and my dad opened the door and said, "I thought you were going for a month." Said, yeah. <laughs> so that really sparked your wanderlust. Yeah, so I just learned I'm not very good at traveling. I, I need planning. I need, I, when I set off, I need to have somewhere booked where I can eat and drink and wash and go to sleep. I don't like traveling with mates. I don't like traveling with other blokes because mm-hmm. uh, I, 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 just, I like traveling with a girlfriend just because that's cozy and nice. And you go, look, darling, there's a thing. Look at this pyramid. I don't really care if I'm on my own. I certainly don't care if I'm with lads. That, and that truth, I don't like traveling with other men and I don't like traveling without knowing where I'm going, has held true. I learned it, but I didn't necessarily do anything about it because I've subsequent stag trips have always been the, just the worst thing ever. I hated thing, and I'm so glad I'm over it now. Although I'm now at the age I'm getting around to second marriages, so I'm really hoping there's a second wave of stag trips. But that's like just 10 blokes. Meet, we'll meet at Amsterdam Grand Central Station, and we'll just take it from there, lads. And that just means 14 pints, coffee shop, spliff, pass out, be sick, go to some awful club of baroque i mean you know the kind of clubs that men go to in it's just ghastly awful i just want to go back to my family and stay in a nice comfy hotel with a swimming pool <laughs> i still think they beat hindus though even even though they're terrible hindus do sound terrible i give you that you mean the sort of the sitting around drinking chardonnay thing yeah, I mean, at least on stag dues, like everyone gets stuck in. I feel. Mm. Yeah, yeah, you do. Everyone goes right, lads. We're not going to no, got to keep your powder dry on the first night. Save it for the second night. We'll go large. First night, okay. We're just going to take it quite quiet. First night, you lose three people forever, uh, <laughs> and and anyone who does come back dribbles back at nine in the morning, having they've just gone absolutely tonto with 
booze and, and whatever else. And one just less tooth. Had it exactly had it last one less tooth, no clothes, had, you know, a couple of people arrested. And then, and then all the stuff that you, if you planned anything, you planned for that second night, the, 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 the Friday, usually having left work early on a, the, on a Thursday, gone but the, the stuff you've had doesn't happen because he feels so terrible and just crying into your so true so true phoning your wife and i miss you darling and she's saying shut up go and have a good time i don't want to i want to come home (laughs) how are the children i miss the children um Uh, well that doesn't really lead me on to chapter four but i would like to ask you about it which is your all-time favorite destination is there a place that you really do love Oh, there's all sorts of places I love. I mean, um, I do love the south of France. Having sort of joked about it, we had it. My parents had a place there um, in a village called uh, which is up from Saint-Paul-de-Vence. If you go up from, you know, Saint-Paul-de-Vence, if you go up from Antibes to Vence, mm. to Saint-Paul-de-Vence, and there's all these Vierge Perchés on all the little cliff top and uh, Tourette. It's not, it's Tourette sur Lou. It's not the Tourette where everyone swears, although they don't swear there anymore, but the, it's not the Tourette that the disease is named after. Mm-hmm. And there's a place there, and I, my parents, got that as a sort of when they're in their when they were fifth, in their 50s bought this place but they were for the next 15 years they were still working hard and so they never went and I was a student of 18 19 so I used to go and spend my summers there oh, um, lovely. and spoke French because I spent a year I lived in Paris for a year which is not a, after I left university I went to had a girlfriend who, who who was living in Paris so I went to live in Paris but I didn't have a nice you guys you can imagine being me I didn't have a nice time I worked in a shop Ralph Lauren the Polo Ralph Lauren boutique on Place de la Madeleine worked very hard just and I have no I've never been back it was 30 years ago and people really? go, go to Paris go, yeah nah Paris don't really like it it's, it's uh so I but, but I did learn to speak fluent French because it's inconvenient I don't like Paris um but uh what I do like is Corsica actually because Corsica I have in common with the Corsicans speaking fluent French and not really liking France Corsica is beautiful which parts of Corsica do you like to go to I like some of the sort of spooky towns in the interior like Sartén you know the ones where they're all they're all still the old ladies are wearing black and men on this street don't talk to men on that street um, but but then also I like Saint Florent. Is that still nice? I haven't been back for a while. Which is when you're looking at it, there's the sort of finger of Corsica that points up, and in the nook, in the well, just mm. in the north, in the northwest, mm-hmm. I guess Saint Florent. Which when I first went, I remember in a guidebook, like a rough guide or something, he said, "Oh, it's like Saint Tropez in the fifties and I thought, "Well, oh, rubbish." And I got there, and it was. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, there's a lot of unspoiltness about it. I think the, the the billionaires have discovered it since I used to go. I think, although they've more discovered Sardinia, haven't they? Yeah, but, I think they're more Sardinia. They are more Sardinia. Although it's so, not a cheap place to go. What, Sardinia? Corsica. No, it's it's still pretty spenny, I would say. Oh, it was cheap. Like, there was, used to be this thing, what were they called? Um, Ferme, Ferme Belge, they were called. They were, uh, which was a sort of, it was, you didn't really have organic stuff here yet. This was the early 2000s. Uh, you had some organic. And, they, and they, the Ferme Belge were these Corsican-owned, because everything's very nationalistic there. They're always blowing up post offices and stuff. They hate France. They hate the French. They hate the municipal government. And they had this these Ferme Belge, which were, you know, Hotel, farm hotels, where by state, by, 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 by provincial law, all the produce you ate, or 90% of it had to come from within a kilometre of where you were sitting. So everything was, was local. And they had these amazing pigs, you know, which are a sort of cross between a, well, they're, they're, they're an ancient breed that is a cross between wild boar and domestic pigs. And they live on the, in the forêt de Châtaigne, the, 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 the chestnuts. So they, 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 
where where most pigs live on acorns in in you know, the, the Americas live on acorns. These pigs live on chestnuts, and they're just an amazing flavor. Uh, and they have wonderful cured meats and stuff. So yeah, no, I love, I know, I love, love, love Corsica and all of it. Sort of Bonifacio, Ajaccio is lovely. The cities are lovely. The coast is amazing. There's only one road. I have a terrible sense of direction, which is one of the reasons I'm not a great traveller. But you can't get lost in Corsica because you can. There's only one motorway that just runs along. The, it's not even a motorway. An A road that runs along the top, yeah. the ridge up and down the middle. And you look right, you see the sea, and you look left, and you can see the sea. So you, if you're on that when you're high up, so you really can't get lost there. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, so I, so I, that, that it's it's very popular with me, and they have they have a sort of a great literature and a great. You just feel welcomed. I don't know. I, whereas in France, you feel more like an interloper. But anyway, I was saying that in Tourette's I also I also love that. So um, those, those places I love. In terms of actual hotel, actual place as a family, the thing they have in common with my family is, is Africa and Kenya. And I have a, one of my best friends that, since since university days is African. So and she's a she's Kenyan and, and lives. Uh, now lives in Nairobi, but she's lived all over. So we've always stayed with her when we've been there. I have a slight sort of Karen Blixen, how to farm in Africa kind of uh, post-imperial thing, which I know is sort of wrong and, and, and a bit bit ugly now. But but um, we then, Monica and I went to Kenya for the, f- the first ever show that we did together. Oh yeah, was that Giraffe Manor? Yeah, and we stayed in Giraffe Manor. And I would probably say that it, it's, um, you know, the, it's like an Edwardian golf club with giraffes. Um, it's and I and it's one of the it's the only place from that I filmed in that I went back with my family and I took the kid. I took the kids in, and I, honestly, having filmed there, I didn't. It was just a couple of days filming. Oh yeah, giraffes come into the breakfast room. They put their heads in the door and you feed them. Whatever. Let's just film this scene and go to bed. With my children, suddenly it was like being in, in, in the Lion King. <laughs> suddenly, really? suddenly it was the most exciting thing ever. So. It's hard on my bucket list, actually. I mean, I see I see it a lot on Instagram. You know, it's one of those places that people who like to do travel Instagram go. So, okay, so that's what the only downside to Giraffe Manor is everybody is an Instagrammer. Mm. And there's nothing, there were nothing. That, and you know those kind of Instagram girls, the ones, they've all got sort of Kim Kardashian uh, yeah. lips and bikinis. I mean, you know, it's sort of Love Island look. They have and they go, come on, this is Kenya. This is local culture, they do walk around dressed like that and then and then they do these selfies with the giraffes and anyway well that's just a, a particular bet noir of mine but but um aside from all the the, the instagrammy people who were there and of course the giraffe man i want to the whole problem you have and it's a problem i encountered in all the hotels the amazing uh marina bay sands in singapore that we went to with the swimming pool on the you know which on is the, the three yeah. the three monoliths with the river so the swimming pool you cannot swim because it has at any one time a thousand people all selfie. But the point is it's free press for the hotel because the hotel has that pool really deliberately in order to make people do selfies in it and put them on Instagram. So they have this enormous free PR presence. But when you get in, if you try and swim, you get hounded out of the pool because you might splash their camera. They've done their hair and the <laughs> pool can't actually be used for swimming. Um, so that, that annoys me. So I appreciate why Giraffe Manor wants to have all these Instagrammers there. But when they've when they've gone the Instagram, when they've gone to bed or they've gone to their room to upload all their stupid footage, then you have the place to yourself and then you have these amazing drawing rooms and the library and the giraffes uh, and the lovely cooking and the incredibly nice uh, incredibly nice uh, Kenyan people and and um and it's a great stop off and then you can sort of head off into Kenya. The series actually inspired me to um, visit a couple of the hotels that you covered. I ended up writing a couple of features. It really does bring to life places that you might not otherwise have known about. Like I, I didn't know anything about Grand Hotel Bad, Bad Regaz and ended up going mm-hmm. as, a result of the, as a result of the show. Did you enjoy your time there? Yes, Bad Regaz was, uh, was extraordinary. I mean, we, I cycled to Liechtenstein from Bad Regaz. Wow. 
but it wasn't very far. <laughs> it sounded uh, very exciting. And I remember asking the, one of the guys there, um, how would I know? And I, he said, oh, you cycle the Lucenstein tomorrow. Very good. I cycle along the river. You find, is it the Danube? I don't know. No, I'm joking. It's not very good. Cycle along the, the Danube or one of those rivers. And you do it again to Lichtenstein. And I said, how would I know when I've got to Lichtenstein? He said, when you come out the other side. <laughs> That's a big Swiss joke vis-a-vis Lichtenstein. <laughs> it's even smaller than Switzerland. Uh, but yeah, I cycled to Liechtenstein and back. And you know, I, it was lovely. Just in this new series, we, we go to the, I don't know whether it's been out yet, whether it's the one that's next week, but uh, the Schloss Elmau, which is oh, um, yeah. which is amazing. That's in Bavaria, but it's also Alpine and it's um, quite close to the Italian Alps. But, and, th- and that's more, the mountains are just terrific. And as a non-skier, I need to have other things to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so have you been to Schloss Elmau? No, I've not. Beautiful place. Oh yeah. I mean, the, so where Badragaz is, um, is health, uh, Schloss Elmau is culture and it's an amazing uh, concert hall and people, the greatest musicians in the world come to play in return for bed and breakfast, you know, mm-hmm. bed and board and lodging. Well, it's not oh, just wonderful. breakfast, they drink an awful lot of wine to make up the fee, but, it's, and, and, but they give free space in the hotel to the greatest musicians in the world and it's a wonderful thing. Is that a regular occurrence throughout the year? All year round, all year round. So whenever you go there, whenever you go to Schloss Elmau, you will always there will always be concerts with astonishing people playing. Don't ask me who, because I don't know that much about classical music. There were some very famous people there when I was there, and I didn't know who they were. But it's wonderful. There's endless concerts um, and performances. There are four libraries in this hotel, which is very unusual. It's just very cultured. It's sort of very German. The Germans are they're terribly cultured people. Um, they make us look a little bit shabby. Some of the time, I think the chance, but um, but it but it was but it was wonderful, amazing views, and we walked up into a. They have a sort of a hut high up in the mountains, which you walk up to, and then have uh, raclette and, and and do Bavarian umpire. I was sort of in lederhosen doing. Um, um, well, I think they don't call it umpire dancing, do they? But but doing Bavarian folk dancing and, and playing accordion music, and it's you know, it's pretty magical. But to someone like me who's grown up thinking a holiday is is just uh, sorry, I got distracted because the the couple across the road. She's been pregnant, obviously, I think forever, but actually nine months. And they've just come back from the hospital and they're walking in the door with a tiny baby. Oh. Sorry, I was distracted. <laughs> and she doesn't know, oh, that's so sweet. She, she, she can't work out how to get the pram up the steps because she's never had a baby before. I feel like I should rush out and show her how to use a pram. Um, sorry, what was I saying? Yes, it was marvellous. Uh, uh, it, it's uh, an amazing place, just Mama. Oh, it sounds wonderful. And when you've been filming, which of the hotels across the, the three seasons thus far have you... Have there been has there been one where you've kind of pinched yourself that you've been there? Um, or have you been thinking I just want to go home? Quite often, I one of the problems I miss my family a lot. I mean, traveling for a hotel is it's amazing, but the rooms are and we get put in these amazing rooms. We have these amazing experiences, but really, travel is a thing is a thing to be shared. Unless you're weird like Paul Theroux or something, but uh, you want to be on your own. But but uh, so Africa was amazing, and I'm with Monica, who's my friend, and I love her. But so I, I loved Kenya because it was the first one, and uh, being in being in Giraffe Manor, and then being up at the lodge in in, in um, Samburu. And that was great because I'd always wanted to go back there and, and I felt like David Attenborough in my chinos and my blue shirt. Oh, this is marvellous. But, but the, the place I would never have ever, ever gone probably was on the, the Brando uh, on, on Tetiara, which is an island off Tahiti in the South Pacific. Um, and it takes two days to get there. And I, you know, I, I don't enjoy these hotel experiences in themselves per se 
as much as I'd like to, because you walk into an amazing room with its own pool and a view of the sea, and you can see whales breaking on the horizon, and there's pineapples growing in the garden, and you want to say, you want to share it with your wife, I do, and my children, and I go, look, kids, look at it, and then you, I go, have all this, and then I come home, and I take my family to some crappy three-star hotel, and I feel bad, and I want them to be there with me in these amazing places, and you, I don't have someone to share them with, apart from the viewer, so I'm going, look, viewers, wow, look at this amazing thing, but the, the brand in Tetiroa was astounding, and I'm not that part of the show we're making is how do you get a five-star experience in a place like this? We're miles from anywhere, and yet you can order anything you want, the foie gras and the day and the thing. To me, that side, as it, although it's a big part of the show, doesn't interest me that much because in my job, when you become very quickly aware, as I'm sure lots of people are, that when at the very top end, food's basically all the same. You go to a really, 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 really expensive, super fine, super posh hotel, and the menu will be very familiar. The same obsequious staff will get the same. Oh, we've been the beautiful, we recommend the 2015 Chasson Montrachet. And you think it's traveled as far as I have to be here. This is ridiculous. I'm meeting this bottle of wine on the other side of the world. Yeah. Everything, you know, it can all be the same. And, but the, but, but the, the, the stuff that's outside the hotel, uh, that's completely new. And, and uh, the Brando, uh, which was fun. It was called the Brando because this was Marlon Brando owned the island. It was a crazy project of Brando's. He'd fallen in love with, with the South Pacific after making Mutiny on the Bounty. Uh, he'd impregnated most of the South Pacific. Almost everyone there is related to Brando now. We went to look for whales and you didn't have to look very hard. I saw um, humpback whales. I was having breakfast and I see them break and, and, and leap out of the water. And, and whales, you know, you just don't, whales, it's like unicorns now. You just don't see them. It's not a thing you see in your life. And, or you know how you go somewhere where there can be, when you, can, you travel, you go to Nantucket or whatever, and they go, you must go and see the whales in whale season. And it's never whale season whenever you're in the place. And it's like, I don't want to go if there's no, well, you can go and see where the whales would have been. No, nope, I don't want to. We were there when there were whales and there was this reef and I just was sitting there having breakfast. And the first time I saw it, see a 250 ton whale just come out of the sea and splash back and we got in and we went out to see them we went out in a little speedboat and there were whales there was a there was a humpback whale uh with a calf just swimming around the boat and we asked if we were allowed to go in and the rule is you can't go within 50 meters of them but, it, but if they come to you you can get in the water with them but you mustn't go after them so I, i'm quite a bit scared of sharks and stuff like that i don't uh-huh. i like swimming in the sea but i always think of you know dun, 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 i think of jaws but i got in with this whale and monica and i both did and i swam and i had a, only a snorkel and dive down and there was this whale and it had turned its, its great eye on me and there was its baby next to it. and i looked at it for about a minute minute and a half and then it sort of turned its back and it just flicked its tail once and pew, disappeared and then I, I went the next day I went scuba diving I'm not very good at it I don't really like it like most things but I know how to do it and I saw tiger sharks which I'd normally be scared of but you know, there they were and, I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and a giant turtle I, saw, I was swimming along and there was an actual giant turtle and these are things which I don't really have in my life largely because I'm mostly lying by a pool in the south of France Mm-hmm. Um, where you don't see so many giant turtles. So the, wow. that 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 one that that was a real. If I had a bucket list of those things, it would be on it. Sounds absolutely amazing. So chapter five is your hidden gem, a place that you've experienced in your life that maybe other people wouldn't know about. Um, that sounds like quite a good one. To be fair, the brando. To be fair, we could say the brando, couldn't we? The brando in Tetiray, or, or you could say the Bellin at Langford, which is just off the A40. The Bellin at Langford, yes, I, that's a great place. I, I think that's the best restaurant. I think it's the best pub restaurant in the country. Uh, it is. It is an hour's drive from an hour and a half from London. I mean, you drive out on the A40. I think you come off at Burford, or depending on how you want to do it. The owner there, Peter Creed, used to 
I know him a bit. He used to have a pub near us in the Cotswolds. He has a pizza oven there, but he does amazing sort of bone marrow flatbreads and things. And, and he has these amazing in-season venison and birds and stuff. And then he also does pizzas because if you're going to run a pub in a village and serve the village and get people to survive with people coming three times a week, you've got to give them pizza. And it's brilliant pizza. And it's amazing cooking and a wonderful wine list. And they've just put rooms in about two years ago, six rooms, 10 It's a good rooms. place to stop off, isn't it, if you're driving, say, from London uh, deeper into the Cotswolds, like a good place to stop for lunch on the way. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's why. Except they have such a good wine list. Such a good... So it's, it really is a thing. So we usually, if we're driving to the country, we drive, we drive, I drive there, and then we get out, then we have lunch, and then my wife drives on. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Great plan. Great plan. Good tip that. In contrast, then, chapter six is the place that you'd never go back to. Where's been your worst travel experience? I, there was a there was a nature reserve in Kerala. I can't remember its name and it would be mean to say its name. But I went to Kerala with my wife just before we got married. And uh, I had lots of air miles, enough for a first class flight anywhere in the world. Uh, and we thought, well, we'll go to India. Um and we go first class BA to India. And we wanted to go after our wedding. We were married on April the 24th. And then, I, which I gathered, it was monsoon season. So apparently, over there about. So you don't want to go to uh, Kerala in uh, May, June. So we thought we'll go before our wedding. So we went for the pre-wedding honeymoon. I can't remember exactly when. Anyway, we went. And it was, it was very much like my interrailing experience. It didn't really work out. I tried to, I got a Ponzi travel company to book it. But they put us for eight nights in a really fancy sort of, mandarin oriental type hotel we were there for three weeks and you couldn't have been anywhere in the world and i thought how can we be so we busted out of that and went traveling around a bit got it all completely wrong ended up in this nature reserve where there were meant to be tigers and elephants and saw nothing of the kind nothing at all and we, we it ended up having a joke with us we'd hear a noise of a cast i think it's not a tiger uh, in, the, in the end all we ever saw was cormorants we went out on this boat on a lake and he was spotted and we thought on this lake there's going to be this and this and he and the guy the guide kept saying over there is a cormorant Literally, and we go, a cormorant. I mean, I, I'm going to Norfolk next week. I'll see some cormorants there. I do not need to go to a you know, game reserve in India to, to see cormorants. Uh, and then I got absolutely stonking, you know, trot, deli belly, whatever, amoebic dysentery. I don't know what it was, but I got ab- laid waste. So then, then we were in this, in this hotel in the empty nature reserve with no tigers and no elephants or anything. And I was just hallucinating, delirious. And my wife had to go off on a tuk-tuk and try and find uh, Imodium. Oh, uh, and I was I was like lost a stone I was close to death and only then did I start to hear tigers and, I, and, and people had told me that the tigers sound like someone sawing wood and I, I just heard this and I just I'm alone in this thing and the tiger's gonna come and eat me uh, and for two days I was having this hallucination and then I recovered and I came out and there was a bloke sawing wood <laughs> uh, that was all it ordered to be so yeah I, I wouldn't go back there oh, that's fantastic well from Lows to highs then. The final chapter of your mm. travel diaries, Giles, is what is at the top of your travel bucket list. Well, you see, I mean, I want, I want to settle somewhere other than here. My wife can't be persuaded really, but I mean, I half thought of moving to the Cotswolds. We have this house there and I, I thought maybe I could live there. But I'm a Londoner and I, I know what to do on a summer, summer's evening in the countryside. I know that you go, you play in a village cricket match and then have a couple of pints and lie in the Shane, chatting to your friends. I don't know what you do on a rainy Tuesday in March in the countryside. Unfortunately, you go hunting or something. I don't know what they do. So I need to be abroad. I had, I've always had this. It's again a Hemingway like dream, born of reading one of his late books. I think when he went, he was in Chile or somewhere. I, I've always or Cuba. I, 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 I always had this idea of myself. You know, when my dreams of travel when I was young, I still thought I wanted to. I always imagined this house on a 
cliff, and I thought it would be in Cuba, uh, somewhere in South America, and there's these long drapes blowing, and there's a bamboo or wicker table with a typewriter on it. I used to write on a typewriter because I'm old. Um, and and that I would be a writer, and I would be, and this is travel. I mean, it, you know, it, I don't know where it is exactly. I don't know what country, uh, but I would just be sort of sitting overlooking the sea uh, with a cold beer because I used to think again, like when I used to want, think I want to travel. I, the thing I didn't realize about writing is you you can't do it with a beer and you can't do it with a view. You have to look at a wall and you have to drink tea and then you get stuff written. And if you if you have a beer and a view of the sea, that's a holiday. It's not really, you're never going to write anything. But that's sort of where it would be. I think somewhere, somewhere like, I, I think Cuba, uh, I think on the, on the coast, um, but sort of for a long time, getting really, really brown and letting my long, getting my white grey hair grow very, very long and a pair of Speedos and leathery tan skin, sitting at a desk typing and maybe having a cold beer and my wife and children not far away. That, you know, that 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 is my... That's my bucket list. That's where I would like it to end. Mm. Well, I hope it becomes a reality one day. Thank you. I hope it does too. But I can't imagine my children will want to come with me. But by then, I might have got used to being on my own. <laughs> you never know. We'll we'll watch this space. You keep us posted. I certainly will. I'll send you a postcard from there. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Giles. Those were your travel diaries. It's been such a pleasure to chat to you about your travels around the world. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure. Oh, that was the fabulous Giles Corrin. Amazing Hotels, Life Beyond the Lobby is on BBC Two at 8pm tonight and the whole series is available on BBC iPlayer. Remember, all the destinations mentioned by my guests are included in each episode's show notes. If you liked this episode, why not subscribe and get new episodes weekly? You can do that for free on all the podcast apps like Apple, Spotify and CastBox. And to find out who's on next week's show, come and find me on Instagram. I'm at Holly Rubenstein. I'd love to hear from you. For everything else podcast related, visit thetraveldiariespodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to speaking to you again next week. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.